Good morning, Cornerstone. Would you stand with us as we worship together?
you are our living hope, Lord. And we just thank you so much for all that you've done for us, God, for your faithfulness, for your goodness, and for sending your son to die on the cross for us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Hey, let's try something new before you sit down. Scripture says to greet each other with a holy kiss. We're not up for that yet. How about greeting each other with a holy elbow or just a wave high? Let's just get back to a little bit more of the normal. Enjoy the presence of those around you for a moment. Well, that didn't take long to feel back to normal, did it? We're sure glad you're here this morning. Welcome. Sure nice to see the, the, the engagement across the room. It was a long haul up till now. So God bless you. Ah, perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we have a guest speaker this morning, so we have to modify things a little bit. Thank you, sir. Well, grateful that you're here this morning. Let me highlight a couple of things. Along with the greeting, you're going to find a pen, a communication card, and a tithe envelope in front of you for the first time. So take advantage of that. Um, fill it out. Let us know what we can pray for you about this coming week. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so we're grateful for that. Um, we had the greeting. Boy, there's just some stuff. Oh, and the ushers are available to hand out Bibles. If um, you need the Bible, as our guest speaker gets into the message this morning, um, he'll, he'll have the ushers come down, and we've got a Bible for you if you need it this morning. A um, couple of announcements to go through. Let's pull up the, um, the Young Ladies Bible Study. Elena's going to be leading this, and there's a meeting next Sunday, 4 o'clock at Preston Field, and this is an eight-week Bible study for teen girls that Elena's going to lead, and it's going to start on the week of June 20th. They're going to nail down the date when they get together next week. So if you are a young teen and would like to be part of that, um, female that is, uh, show up to the meeting. If you have a young gal in your family, invite them to come. If you see a young gal at the 7-Eleven, let them know where Preston Park is next Sunday, 4 o'clock. That's going to be a great, uh, a great ministry. Um, number two, I am they. So excited about these young folks coming in. They're coming in for a concert July 17th. That's a Saturday night. Tickets are available on our website, cornerstonecommunity.net, right on the front page there. Make sure you grab tickets. It's going to be a great experience. And then on the heels of that, we've got the soccer camp that is starting uh, that next Monday, the 19th. And that is a Monday through Friday, Monday, Monday through Thursday, 9 to 3, and then Friday, 9 to noon. A great time for your kids. Get them signed up for uh, the soccer camp, and it's going to be a great experience. This afternoon, we have Takata coming in to give a free concert. 
Um, donations are welcome, but the concert starts at 4 o'clock, and the stage will be stripped, and you'll have an entire orchestra up here and enjoy some great classical music. So that's this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Well, like I said, we have a guest speaker this morning, and uh, he's been on quite a journey, and uh, I'll let him introduce himself. Pastor Tony Slavin, is it? Yeah, come on up. You know, it's, it's been a... Um we took four weeks off, put 4,500 miles on my truck, and had a blast driving out to Texas. We stayed at Al Denson's ranch for over two weeks. He has these cabins. We stayed there and just relaxed. Drove into Colorado to see our son and grandson and daughter-in-law, and it was a phenomenal time. But I'm out of practice, and so here's what's happened. I have my notes on my iPad. I didn't bring my Bible. So I need someone to run to my desk up there and get my Bible, my large print Bible, the ESV. And this is very embarrassing, but um, that's life. So, but we're, we're going to be in Romans 11 this morning, so open your Bibles. We have been in the book of Romans since last July, and we'll probably be in the book of Romans until Labor Day, is my guess. We're in Romans 11, and I'm going to cover the whole chapter in one day today. But I want to I give you a reminder of where we've been since I've been gone a bit. And, and we've been in um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul wrote the book of Romans to a church he had never visited yet to basically lay out the fullness of the gospel. And in that book, he tells us about, about the fact that we are all dead in our sins, that before God, it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, we are all condemned under sin. Under sin. And, and yet that's the bad news. But here's the good news. So Christ came and took the penalty for us. He who knew no sin became sin. That's 2 Corinthians, but it's the same principle as Romans 5. God's great love for us. So, Neil, thank you very much. Yeah. It's the wrong one, Neil. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, so, hopelessly dead in our sins due to Adam, but God made us alive in Christ, all because of what Jesus did for us. And not only that did he make us alive, he gave us the power, according to chapter 6 of Romans, to fight sin. So sin is no longer our master. We learn seven times in Romans chapter 6, it says that sin is no longer our master. We don't have to obey. So the gospel is more than simply being forgiven. It's, the forgiveness is the idea of deliverance from the penalty of our sins. But Romans 6 tells us there's deliverance from the power of sin also. Then it moves into chapter 7 to say, hey, there's still a battle. There's still a major battle going on. Every day we fight this thing, but we can win. Chapter 8, though, introduces the concept that in the future, Christ is coming, and our full adoption, our full salvation will be accomplished. We're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. So the gospel is about being delivered from the power of sin, the, the penalty of sin, and the presence of sin, ultimately. And that's a day coming, and what a glorious day that will be. Say that again, Rich. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. So, in all this, Romans 8 ends, all of this is grounded in and made certain by God's undying love for you. And I always like to do a play on words. We say undying love. Maybe it's by his dying love, because his son died for us to secure that. And what we learn there, what can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Let's hear that a little more. What can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Absolutely nothing. Then chapter 9 comes along, chapter 9 through 11. And we're going to finish 11 today. 
But a natural question comes up in Paul's mind, assuming his readers are thinking this. Paul, Paul's brilliant at always anticipating what his readers are thinking. Well, if God loves us and he will never abandon us and his love will never die for us, what about Israel? Did he abandon Israel? Did his love for Israel run out? So chapters 9 through 11 ask the question, what about Israel? And what's the relationship between Israel and the Gentile believers in Jesus? And so we saw in chapter um, 9 about God's election, how he, he chose some. Chapter 10, we, and that, cho that choosing was based upon his purposes, not what he saw in us. Chapter 10 was about the fact that you must believe. The gospel must be preached, and you must believe or you won't be saved. So we brought in both the concept of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. Chapter 11, though, he brings these together, and that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to look at the question, what about Israel, and what is God's plan for Israel? It's a long chapter. I'm going to read about half of it to you in a moment, but I want to set it up for you. So if you have your Bibles, open to Romans 11. Open your phones, your iPads, your Bibles. If you need a Bible, the ushers already handed them out, but if you need one, raise your hand, the ushers will bring you one. And this idea of Israel. So remember Israel. Israel, go back to Abraham. Let's set this up right. Abraham, God chose Abraham. Say, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. And Abraham, through you, through your children, and at the moment he had none, through your children, your children will be numerous, greater than the stars of the sky, more numerous than the sand of the seashore. And through them will come a blessing that blesses the entire world. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and 2,000 years later, through the tribe of, of, of um, um, thank you, Judah, very much, King David's line, comes the Messiah. And Israel rejects him. After 2,000 years, their Messiah has come. And Israel, for the most part, said, nah, that's not him. We're still waiting. We're still waiting. How many of you like Peter, Paul, and Mary? I love Peter, Paul, and Mary. There's a great song that, that, um, that Paul wrote. No, no, Peter wrote. And it's about um, Hanukkah. And in there, the song, it's a great song, it's about the holiday of Hanukkah. In there, it says they're waiting for the one who will bring peace. You see, he's Jewish. He's still waiting for the one that will bring peace. He's missed it. The one who brings peace came 2,000 years ago. And who believed in him was primarily Gentiles and some Jewish people. But for the most part, the Jewish people rejected him. Chapter 11 tries to make sense of this historical event. So it opens up chapter 11 with this idea that has God abandoned Israel? Absolutely not. Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I'm Jewish. I believe in Jesus. Clearly he hasn't abandoned us. And he then quotes Isaiah, or excuse me, Elijah. How Elijah ran from Jezebel. You guys remember that story? After he, after he brings fire down on the prophets of Baal on, and, and has all this boldness, then Jezebel, the queen, says, I'm going to kill you. And he runs from her in fear. It's kind of this strange, um, strange thing. He'll stand up to 400 prophets of Baal, but runs from the queen. He's in a cave hiding, saying, God, I'm the only one left. And so Paul references this story, and God says, no, they're not. I have reserved 7,000 who have not bent their knee, knee to Baal. These are the remnant. 
there'll always be a remnant of believers. And so early chapter 11 talks about this remnant chosen by grace, not by works, not by their self-righteousness, chosen by grace. God has chosen a remnant. But then he says in chapter 11, 7 through 10, that many, the rest were hardened. Do you remember back in chapter 9, how he talks about God hardens some and has mercy on some? Remember that? How he, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, but had mercy on others? Well, he set us up there to remind us here, this is why many Israelites haven't believed God has hardened their hearts. But not permanently. But why did he do it? As it goes on there, so I'm, I, I'm giving you the first 12 verses here, but instead of reading it to you. Why did he do it? Because he's using Israel's hard heart to go to the Gentiles. And most of you in this room, I know a few of you have Jewish descent, but most of you in this room are Gentiles, i.e., if you're not familiar with the biblical terminology, biblical terminology, there's two groups of people, Jewish people and Gentiles. So if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. And it says God went to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And so that, that's how the chapter 11 sets us up. And so what I want to do, if you have your notes in front of you, and we'll be going back to the bulletin soon. Oh, by the way, take a break. Look up at me. Because I'll forget this if I don't say it now. This is a commercial break. This week and next week, we have two services, 9, 30, and 11. But on Father's Day, the 20th, we go back to one service at 9, 30. And so um, I'm very excited about that. We get the whole family back together again. And so get here early if you want a spot. Otherwise, you've got to park on the street. And so we'll let you know next week also. We'll put it out through email communication. But in two weeks from today, on the 20th, Father's Day, one service, 9.30. Okay, commercial over. Let's look at the concept of the one people of God. Jew and Gentile brought together to be the one people of God, illustrated by an olive tree. So Paul uses this olive tree to talk about the fact that God is the root. He's the root. He's the stalk of the tree. And the branches represent the people of God. The natural branches are Israel, but God cut those off and grafted in wild branches, the Gentiles. But understand this is one people of God. So, so I'm going to say it now. You guys can disagree with me. And if you're, if you're a man, come to men's Bible study tomorrow morning. We'll talk about it. I don't believe there's two people of God, the church in Israel. I believe there's one people of God. And those are people who believe in Jesus Christ, whether Jewish or Gentile. And God has a great plan for his people. Israel slash the church. And so I want to show you how chapter 11 teaches this. But what I want to read to you now is chapter 11, 13 to 32. And so let's go there. Romans 11, 13 to 32. Then we'll, we'll, we'll look at some things going on there. I need to finish up this concept of Israel and God's hardening of them and turning to the Gentiles. But what I really want to do today is talk about this God who does this and how we're to respond to him. So chapter 11, 13 to 32. Okay, that's 1 Corinthians 11. That's not the book. That'll be communion later. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if, re if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he starts his imagery there of an olive tree. Olive trees were, were ubiquitous. They were all over the place in the Middle East. So, so people understood the idea of an olive tree and the sturdy, the hardy root system and, and grafting branches in. They understood that imagery. Paul's using that to talk about the people of God. But if some of the branches were broken off, meaning Israelites, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, if you are remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were cut off so that I could be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. And here's the point at this point now. This is, there's this idea of, of arrogance that we might think, since as a Gentile, since most of us in this room are Gentiles, well, I figured it out. I figured it out. I'm smart. Those other people didn't figure it out. They're not very bright. And I could become arrogant. I could become self-righteous. When what we're going to learn here, and it's been through the whole book of Romans, how did you come to Jesus? It had nothing to do with how smart you are. Nothing to do with how bright you are. It had to do with the fact that God opened your eyes to see his son. You see, it is by grace that God has brought you in. It's not by your good works. It's not by your intelligence or anything else. You get no glory. He gets it all. So Paul is saying here, be careful, Gentiles. God in his mercy has grafted you in. But it's all his work. It's not yours. Be very careful with arrogance. We'll come back to some of that in a minute. Oh, by the way, based on this, in light of our world today of so much hatred and prejudice and persecution and, and one race against another race, based on this, there is no room in the church of God for any form of prejudice. In this particular case, it would be what's called anti-Semitism today, to be against Jewish people. There is nothing in the word of God that allows this because we're all in on the same basis, the grace of God. It's the grace of God that saves us all, no matter what your race is. In Romans chapter, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7, Paul says there, here I'm messing my authors up. John says there in Revelation that there'll be people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group in glory in heaven. Not because of their ethnic origin, not because of how intelligent they were, not because of who their mother or father was, simply because of the grace of God. So no one gets to say, I'm better than you in the church. No one gets to say, I have a right to be here. You don't. So there's no room for any kind of prejudice, none whatsoever. And so let's be very careful as Christians. We never project any self-righteousness that can be interpreted as some form of prejudice against anybody. And this particular context would be against Jewish people. With that, where did I stop? 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. We're going to come back to that. And even they, 
that is the Jewish people, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has power to graft them back in again. If you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own tree? So here's the hope for Israel right now. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Then he goes on to quote a passage about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So th this is the beauty of the gospel. God promised to Abraham 2,000 years ago, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing. And you'll have more children in the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And we know that took place through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 10 to 12 tribes of Israel. God has a plan for the descendants of Abraham. And it happens in conjunction with the end times in the second coming of Christ. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, whatever that means, whatever God's pre-appointed number is for us as he's elected us, when that takes place, evidently, the plan shifts back to Israelites. Now, when I'm talking about Israelites, I'm not talking about the nation that started in 1948. So let's just be careful that we don't equate the promise to Jewish people to the nation that exists today. I'm very pro-Israel, don't get me wrong. Here's what I'm saying is, God's promises is to the people, not the political entity. Are you with me? The political entity today is primarily atheistic. It is not someone who is a country that is for Yahweh. So, so the promise is to the people of Abraham's natural lineage. And be very careful also, this is a sidebar, I'm not an expert on these things, be very careful also of, of condemning Palestinians. You know, the oldest church in existence is among the Palestinians. The church that's been in existence from since, since after Christ is in the Palestinian people. And, and, and don't confuse Palestine with Hamas as though they're de always equal. So all this political stuff we've got to be careful of because that's what causes our anti-Semitism. That's what causes us to be prejudiced and to do things that are stupid, dishonoring to God. God has a promise to his people, whether they live in Israel or live in the United States. And somehow in the end times, their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to see the Savior. And what a glorious day that will be. Now, I, I have a lot I don't understand about the end times, a whole lot. But that's my current understanding. Come tomorrow morning, we'll, we'll debate it. So I'm going to keep, keep reading through 32. Then, I, then we're going to stop and talk about God. 20, as regards the gospel, they, that is these Jewish people in Paul's days, they are enemies for your sake. You see, the Jewish people that day were against the gospel. They were trying to stop Paul. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So God has chosen them, so they're beloved. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. If God promises to do something, he's going to do it. For just as you were at that time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too now they have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So with that, it's a long section. I hope, hope you stayed with me. I want to look at some important takeaways for our walk with God. Because in the end, salvation 
is so much more, I say this all the time, salvation is so much more than something I was given when I believed in Jesus, forgiveness, and a promise of going to heaven when I die. Those two things are glorious truths. But you know, most of the Bible is written to the in-between time. It's written to how we grow in our salvation, in our walk with Christ. So today what I want to finish out this message is to look at what this passage says about this God we walk with. You see, we have a relationship with the living God. It isn't just that, it isn't just that Jesus is a distributor of benefits, forgiveness in heaven someday. Jesus is the Lord you get to know, have a relationship with, walk with him, grow in your understanding of him. So let's look at what we learn here about the nature of God. And when I talk about God, I'm referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though in this particular case it's primarily referencing the Father. So, important takeaways for our walk with God. First, Gentile believers have no grounds for pride but rather fear. Let's look at that again. I addressed it for a moment. Let's look at it again, verses 19 to 22. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So what, what is that saying, guys? Sometimes we don't want to talk about the fear of God. In fact, if we go back to chapter 8, the idea that nothing can separate us from the love of God, then we would think, okay, fear is out the door. There's no reason to be afraid of anything. So I don't think it's fear in the sense of, of I, I tremble and, and cower before an unpredictable, capricious God who might slap me in the next week. God is very knowable and, and, and predictable in the sense he, he, we can know who he is and he always follows through on his character. I don't want to call God predictable in the sense that I can, um, I can control him. But So what does it mean to fear? Don't get proud. Don't be overconfident, but fear. What do we do with that? And I think part of this here is, let's remember, I read Romans 11, the doxology at the end, which I'm going to end on today, a month and a half ago. And I brought a box up here. Remember that? I brought a box up. What did I do with that box? What did the, the box represent? Tell me you remember. Tell me I'm not wasting my time. I'll remind you. The box represented a concept that sometimes we have an idea of who God is, and we put him in a box. And this box is easily defined by its size. So I, I know how God is going to act because I, I have him well-defined. I have him controlled in my box. What did I do with the box? I crushed it and threw it at somebody in the front row. I forget who it was. See, God is so much greater than we are that when we think we got it figured out, pride comes in. When pride comes in, we should be fearful. Because what is God going to do with his prideful children? 1 Peter chapter 5 says this. James chapter 4 says the same thing, but I think I'm quoting chapter 5 of 1 Peter. It says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So make that imagery there. Here's the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And then he, in due time, will exalt you. You see the imagery? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and once we've been humbled, we humble ourselves, then he picks us up and exalts us. What happens if I don't humble myself under the mighty hand of God? What's the mighty hand of God going to do? 
You see, if we're his children, and he has a goal for us, his goal for us is Christ-likeness, to become like his son. His son became like us in order that we would become like him. So one of the things Jesus was, at the heart of who Christ was, was humility and meekness. So we, he is working in us to humble us, to exalt us. Interesting, it says humble yourself. This is an action we do. But if we don't, the mighty hand of God is going to humble us. And that, that should cause some concern for us in our arrogance. This is a good time to say, God, is there arrogance in me? Is, is there arrogance in me? Good. Show it to me, God, because I, I want to be the full recipient of your mercy and be exalted someday. So therefore, if I, I need to humble myself. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. None, or note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. I taught emphatically back in Romans 8 what was referred to as eternal security, referred to as not losing your salvation, that once God saves you, he keeps you. And I firmly believe that in Scripture. I think it is all through Scripture. What do we do with passages like this, though? That says, in your arrogance, if you don't humble yourself, that God will cut you off too. What do we do with that? This is, this is one of those things. If we have God in the box, we say, no, I got God controlled. Because I know it doesn't matter what I do, because I'm in. I think what it is, sometimes we have to say, you know what, let's, let's have a little bit of, you know, in my confidence, God will never send me to hell. That Once he's placed me in Christ, once I have died with Jesus, been buried with Jesus, raised from him, and I now sit at his right hand with Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, that, that all that, God is never going to throw me away to hell. I don't believe that. But what should be a fruit of all that is a measure of, of humility and an adoration of God who did all this for me. But as soon as there becomes this arrogance that somehow I deserve to be in and you don't, maybe that's an indication I'm not in. It's an indication I didn't really understand the gospel and what God did for me. So there's a sense here of, of I think Romans gives us this confidence, but let's not get overconfident in our salvation. Let's always go back and ask the question, do I still trust in Jesus? Am I still dependent upon him every single day? Because what I want is the kindness of God, not the severity. And if you're here today, maybe you were raised in church, and, and just going to church and believing in Jesus has been your whole life, but, but, but then you look at your life, it doesn't really reflect anything of Christ's value system. I think you should ask the question, is his kindness towards me or is his severity towards me? Have I missed the point? Talk to God about that. Luckily, I don't have a monitor I can go around and say, okay, Denise, you're in. You know, Steve, uh, Rich, okay. You, you don't want me having that power. Um, so talk to God. Talk to God. God, is there an arrogance in me that I've missed the point of what it means to be saved by grace through faith? And where I utterly, constantly trust in Jesus to save me. All right, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead. So... Um, 
There's a time coming when Jewish people will turn to Jesus. We already talked about that in 25 to 27. So, so here, here's the important thing here. It's called evangelism. Until the fullness of the Gentiles is in. Now, I, don't, I, I wonder, can we, can we speed up the second coming of Christ? Can we? I see some no, some yes. I say yes and no. So, so based upon this, the fullness of the Gentiles, based upon the fact that, that, that in the Gospels, I forget which one, I think it's Matthew, it says that, that Christ will not return until the Gospel has been spread to the entire world. And we're to make disciples of all nations. So we have a job to do. We have a job to do. And if we're not getting it done, that delays things from our perspective. Obviously, God knows his timing. But if we have a job to do, and that is that, that God has chosen a certain amount of Gentiles to come in. Let's get out and tell them about Jesus. So that that escalates from our perspective, this end times. And boy, do people, people always need hope. But do they need it now more than ever? They need hope. They need a measure of, of certainty. God is in control in light of all the craziness happening in our world. That God's working his plan. And we're his instruments to share that plan. So... So let me get to the, don't put God in a box to fit your comfortable theology. I'm going to come back to that since I started this month and a half ago. Don't put God in a box to fit your comfortable theology. I want to read to you Job. Job, chapters 1 and 2 of Job, God allows Satan to decimate Job's life. After chapter 2, of Job, you never hear about Satan again. He's only in the first two chapters. After that, who is Job confronting to get an answer for his pain? God. He knows ultimately, even if he knew it was Satan, doesn't say he did. He knows ultimately who runs the universe. God does. So God, so throughout, Job is saying, I want an answer. His friends are saying, well, you sinned, Job. It's your fault. He's saying, I didn't. I didn't do anything to deserve this traumatic life I've been given from losing my fortune, losing my, my children, losing my health, and my wife telling me to curse God and die. I didn't do anything to deserve this. So then from chapter 3 or 4, once his friends start talking to him, all the way to 37, Job says, God, I want an answer. So let's look at God's answer. Verse 38. This is where Job put God into a box and said, you owe me an answer. You need to answer the questions in my box. And God crushed the box. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job. And the word Lord, there's Yahweh. Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. And you know what that means? Literally, it says, gird up, gird up your skirt and tie it up for action. It'd be like if you were a farmer or a soldier and you wore a tunic. You'd pull it up, tie it around you so you could move quickly. Um, so then the modern terminology, gentlemen, is put your big boy pants on, is what God is saying to Job here. Put your big boy pants on. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So Job's been saying all along, God, you owe me an answer. God's saying, how about you answer me now, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know, Job. 
And God goes on from chapter 38 all the way through 41. 38, 39, 40, four chapters I had to do my counting. And describes his providential, sovereign control of the universe. How he determines all things. So now let's look at Job's response in chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered Yahweh, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Catch that. God can do all things. Anything God chooses to do, he can do. And once he proposes to do something, he purposes it, no one can thwart it. No one. That's what it means to be sovereign. You asked, so Job, you asked who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? But I have declared without understanding things too wonderful for me to know. There's Job crushing his box, saying, I had it all wrong about who you are, God. You said, pay attention and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. That's what God said to Job. And Job responds, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. There's Job's point of humility. God owes me nothing. God owes me nothing. And so I have no right to challenge him and say, you owe me an answer. But if we go back and read verses, chapters 38 through 41, you're going to see this wonderful, providentially good God who bestows goodness on all of us. And Job misunderstood that God and thought he was owed something by that God. And that he fully understood that God. And Job learned he's owed nothing and understands minimal. And that's where I think we need to start as we read passages like this today. We talk about the kindness and severity of God. We're really good with his kindness, are we not? But his severity when it comes at us, I don't have a filter for it. Because God... I thought you said you would take away all my pain. When in reality, he said, no, no, no. I told you I would use your pain to make you like Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1. We could go on and on with the misunderstandings we have of God. But let's read now verses 30 to 32 to get a little relief here. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So the Gentiles have received mercy because the Jewish people were disobedient to the call to believe in Jesus. So they too now have been disobedient in order that, that by the mercy shown to them, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The mercy of God, think about it for a moment. The mercy of God should be a, a, a doctrine, a belief that thrills your heart. Because what is, give me a definition of mercy, somebody. Okay, unmerited favor, I would use that for, for um, grace. And it, it's, it's, it's just a little, you know, play on words. I would say grace is, is God gives you what you didn't deserve. Unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it, but God lavished things upon you. I'd call that grace. Mercy, I would say, is the other side of the coin. He didn't give you what you deserved. How many times have you done something in private, that you knew was an offense to your God and maybe an offense to your wife or your husband or your neighbor. And you said, oh God, have mercy on me. 
have mercy upon me. Please don't bring the consequences on me my choices deserve. Ever prayed that prayer? Oh, oh, you guys are incredibly pious. Only about four of us have prayed that prayer. I've prayed that prayer so many times. God, I've done it again. Romans 12, excuse me, Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines those he loves. God takes us to the woodshed. Even that is grace. But God, don't bring the consequences on me my sins deserve. Have mercy on me. What, what it says here is mercy is what God loves to do. But first he has to establish us as disobedient. And he can come alongside and say, I'm going to be merciful to you. And not bring on you what you deserve. Why? Because my son took it for you. We're going to do communion in a moment. And that's the key part about communion. So let's end this today. I'm going to jump ahead here. And we're going to read 33 to 36. This is a, what's called a doxology. A doxology is a, a, some short phrases, terse words, not, not terse in the sense of mean-spirited, but, but tense or, 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 or dense words that bring a ton of theology. And it's usually about the glory and sovereignty of God. So let's read this to finish the sermon. Stand up with me. I'm going to make you sit down in a minute, but stand up with me. I saw Rich yawning over here, so it's time for Rich to stand up. Look on the screen or in your Bibles. Oh, the depth. So this is, this is now the whole, this is his response from chapter 1 where he defines the gospel as the righteousness of God for all who believe. Now through his plan for Israel. So the entirety of his explanation of the gospel. Now this is what flows out of Paul's heart and out of his pen. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And judgments there isn't talking about being judgmental, his decisions, his plans, how unsearchable are his plans and how inscrutable his ways. Would you ever thought up a gospel that said, you know what, all these people who hate me and are rebellious against me, I'm going to send my son to save them. I would never thought that up, nor would I have done it if I did think it up. How unsearchable, inscrutable his ways. And he quotes some passages from Isaiah and Job here. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And the answer is who? Absolutely nobody. And here it is. This Paul loves these things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So from him, God is the source of everything. From him. Through him, God is the sustainer of everything. We talked about this last night in the worship night. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm letting you know if you didn't come last night to the worship night, you missed a glorious time. And I encourage you, next time we do it, um, put it on your calendar, and, and please be here. It was a glorious time. And I just talked about this briefly, that all things are through God. God is the creator of all. He's the source, and he sustains all things. Both Colossians, and chapter, Colossians 2 and chapter 1 of Hebrews tells us that he sustains all things by the word of his power. The fact that we even standing here today is because God has said, I'm going to let you exist today. So he sustains all things. And in the end... All things are to him or for his glory. We exist for him. This little phrase tells us we're not the center of God's plan. He is. But we're the instrument to bring him this glory. Ends with to him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to fully, fully, to the degree we can, Lord, Understand, Lord, I'm going to change that prayer. 
Help us to grow to where we never come to a conclusion we've learned it all, but constantly push that ceiling further up and up and up to grasp who you are, to experience that mercy, and Lord, if necessary, the severity to bring us back to you. Help us never to grow tired of learning, never grow tired of being in wonder and awe of who you are. Never be presumptuous on your mercy and grace in our life, Lord, as though we deserve anything from your hand that is good. But you've lavished it upon us, your word tells us. So thank you, Father, for the truths of the gospel. And next week as we move into chapter 12 to apply these things, God, give us great, great wisdom about who we are in light of who you are. So thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So I'm a little confused. Are we going to sing now? Communion. We're going to do communion, right. Okay. I, I really want to sing that last song we sang again. Can we? Which one? That last one we sang? No, let's not. Let's not. I always mess with her. I always mess with her. I won't do that to her today. I've been working on my house. Took a trip to the dump yesterday. I know that's what you want to hear before communion. And I was listening to the radio station and they were, they were reading, Tom Hess was reading the Bible. The Bible, pure and simple on Pilgrim Radio. And he was reading Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy 16 is talking about Passover meal and then the seven days of unleavened bread, which Jesus celebrated and then turned that into what we call communion. Lord's Supper. But I heard a phrase in there I had forgotten about, that God talks about the bread they were to eat, the unleavened bread, and called it the bread of affliction. So when Christ took the bread that night in celebrating the Passover meal, which is the, the deliverance event of the Old Testament, removed from slavery in Egypt and taken to the promised land as free people. He talked about the unleavened bed being the bread of um, affliction. What is the affliction? Israel's affliction. They were afflicted for hundreds of years by the pharaohs. So God wanted them to eat bread to remind them from where they came. Then Christ takes that bread. What does he do with it? What does he say? This is my body given for you. So if we take that phrase, bread of affliction, in Deuteronomy, representing Israelites' affliction for hundreds of years, and Christ said, that same bread represents my body that was afflicted for you. And it brings in, that's why that song that we last sang talks about the fact that Christ took it for us. And so what I want you to do is I want you to come up and get your communion elements and go back to your seat and we'll partake together. Um, so, and while, while the music plays behind us. So if you could please do that, come up and get your communion elements and go back down and we'll take together. Hmm? They're in the back too. We have them back there and two in front.
in light of our passage today, let's borrow the term, the kindness and severity of God. If we could apply that to us in Christ. Because sin is so offensive to God, the response is severity. Christ bore the severity of God so that you and I could receive the kindness that comes through his grace by faith and it can be described as the mercy of God on every moment of every day of your life. So today as you participate, let's remember that, that because of Jesus, we were delivered from the severity and put into the realm of the kindness of our merciful God. The bread represents the body of Christ given for us. Father, we thank you for this truth that your son became like us so we could become like him. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's partake together. represents the blood of Christ, as you know. And I never tire of quoting Leviticus 17 about there's no forgiveness of, of sins without the shedding of blood. And life is in the blood. Christ gave up his life so you and I could have life. Again, we thank you, Father, for this new life we have, a life where sin is no longer our master. We've been delivered from the, the, power, the power of it and the penalty and someday the presence, Lord, all because Christ died for us. We thank you. Let's partake together. Let's go ahead and stand up.
In the darkness till we were waiting Without hope and without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in the Yeah. 
worshiping with us, you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll see you next week.